Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 504th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Mr. Kevin Hazard, journalist and author who is going to talk to us about his book, American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. To begin with, we'd like to welcome Kevin Hazard to the show. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure just to tell the listeners that we are officially starting a new uh, season of recording, and this is our 15th year of doing ROI. So um, Dave, once again, promised champagne. I see nothing, but we will deal with that issue later. We call the first segment of the show Fadrook to Naren, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So Kevin, can you tell us off, uh, tell our listeners about some basic information on when and why paramedics first became part of emergency medicine? Sure. So in, in, put yourself in, in the shoes of someone in 1965, and you have a medical emergency. Um, depending on where you live in America, you're going to have one of three people show up at your house. It's either going to be police officers, um, it's going to be volunteer firefighters, or it's going to be two undertakers in a hearse. This is what arrives at your house at your moment of greatest need. And, you know, as you can imagine, they're not terribly well-trained, and they're certainly not very well-equipped. And a lot of people are dying from this. So many, in fact, that um, a paper is published. It's referred to today as the white paper. And it says that, um, that in 1965 alone, more Americans died in highway accidents than had died in the entirety of the Korean War. And it also suggested that you are more likely to survive a gunshot wound in Vietnam than you were in America. And the reason, of course, being that in Vietnam, you had a corpsman there next to you, whereas in the United States, you had nothing. So essentially, this is a white flag that is shot up to say, hey, there's a problem here, and a lot of people are dying, and nobody seems to have an answer. So after this, you know, shortly after this happens, there's a gentleman in Pittsburgh uh, by the name of Peter Saffer. He's an Austrian-born anesthesiologist who, a decade before, became known, known as the father of CPR for inventing what we know today as CPR. Um, and he was living in Pittsburgh. He was trying to establish an ICU at the Presbyterian University Hospital. And he saw this problem that existed of, of, of no, you know, no trained professionals that could be there with you at the site of your illness or emergency. And so by himself, he sat down and drew up the world's first paramedic curriculum. Um, and he, you know, he had this incredible idea. And, you know, it's his, what he, his idea, his, his, his class was as rigorous as anything that we have today. Um, I took, you know, the paramedic course decades later, and it was easily um, probably not as, as tough as the one that he put people through in 67. But for all this great idea, he didn't have people. And, you know, sort of in a, in a wonderful um, twist of luck, there was an organization in Pittsburgh at that time in, in a neighborhood called the Hill District. Uh, the neighborhood the organization was Freedom House, and, and their mandate was to provide job training opportunities for African-Americans. And so... Essentially, you know, to condense a lot of back and forth, you had an organization over here that, that had people but not a great job training opportunity. And over here, you had a great job opportunity that didn't have any people. And they met. And, you know, that's, that's how in 67, the world's first paramedics wound up being 24 black men from the Hill District of Pittsburgh. 
So um, let's take a step back because I mean, this topic is just incredibly interesting. But for all those, we have to understand city logistics. So how did um, the, the doctor in charge of this uh, wonderful idea, how did he convince hospitals in the city to go forward with this? Um, as you said, you mentioned those statistics there that probably helped fuel it. But uh, was there any opposition to him in the city in the very beginning? A tremendous amount. He'd been trying to get this idea through for years and nobody would listen to him. You know, today we've had paramedics for decades and there's still opposition to funding it. So, you know, in 1962, 63, when the word paramedic does not yet exist and no one knows of such a thing as practicing medicine in the streets, there's certainly no appetite for putting money behind it. But in 1966, in November, um, a very famous politician by the name of David Lawrence uh, died rather spectacularly at a large um, political gathering the, on the eve of a gubernatorial election. And there was a nurse in the audience who rushed forward, began CPR. But when the city's police board ambulance service arrived, all treatment immediately stopped. And that period of time from when the cops knelt down at his side until he arrived at the hospital was enough time for him to go without treatment because they just picked him up, they tossed him on a canvas stretcher, they ran him to their ambulance, they shut the doors, they left him in there by himself, and they drove to the, the hospital. That was enough time for, um, for his brain to undergo irreparable harm. And so though they were able to get a heartbeat back on him, he was brain dead. And that shock to the city really was what finally got people to say, okay, Peter, what is it you're trying to do? Okay, so let's, in you saying that, take a further step back then. How trained were policemen and firefighters in what we would consider to be paramedics uh, back then? I mean, just envision the lifeguard at your public pool. Um, wow. <laughs> you know, these okay. are people with, yeah, that's it. You know, a couple hours of training and almost no equipment. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I was thinking just pretty much as the procedure. I didn't even think about the equipment. So um, so when did the city, I mean, obviously he started this going. Let's take a look at the individuals that were hired. Um, what were the credentials to hire uh, what eventually became the 24 men um, that helped this program go? The only official mandate that they had in hiring was that each of them had to be black. Um, this was a very specific initiative on the part of Freedom House. They, you know, they were trying to bring job opportunities to a neighborhood um, to, yeah, that, that had been sucker punched by fate and was really in a, in, a, in a very low spot. And so when they approached Saffer and they heard his idea, you know, they were immediately you know, overwhelmed by, by the possibilities, but they told him, look, you know, this is what we have. We have a, we have a group of, of young men. Some of them have not graduated high school. None of them have any kind of medical training. Some have military training. They have sort of an odd assortment of jobs. Um, you know, I mean, if you're entering a job training program, you're clearly underemployed. And the thing is, that's exactly what Saffer was looking for. The color to him was somewhat irrelevant um, as opposed to the guys who were running the nonprofit for whom that was, you know, the centerpiece of it. For Saffer, he wanted to find untrained lay people because he needed to prove this idea of his could be reproduced a thousand times over. And so the only way to do that was to train ordinary people to become medical professionals. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. 
This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. At a time when misinformation is all too common on social media, we take great pride in bringing you the news that matters, that impacts your family, news you can trust. Local broadcast journalists bring you the facts, covering the stories breaking in our community and across the globe. Text RADIO to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on local journalism. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest today is Kevin Hazard, journalist and author, and we're talking about his book, American Sirens, The Incredible Story of the Black Men Who Became America's First Paramedics. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Terry, why don't you start us off? All right, thank you. You mentioned that there were 24 black men from the Hill District of Pittsburgh. Can you give us a description of what was the Hill District of Pittsburgh like in 1967? Sure. Um, So if you imagine Watts in 1965 on the eve of the riots, that is what Pittsburgh Hill District was when Freedom House's ambulance service was conceived. This was a neighborhood that through the 30s and the 40s was a cultural hub for African Americans in the Midwest. Um, It had a lot of jazz clubs, Louis Armstrong, Lena Horne, a number of luminaries were constantly there. They had two Negro League baseball teams. Satchel Page was a pitcher on one of them. The Pittsburgh Courier, which is you know, uh, at, at one time was America's largest black-owned newspaper, was headquartered out of Pittsburgh. So this tiny neighborhood, I mean, it is a small place in a city that's not known as being, you know, a cultural hub of the U.S., really had an outsized presence. But then in the 50s, when urban renewal came along, you know, and cities all across the country are tearing down old neighborhoods to put in highways and new universities and medical systems, Pittsburgh targeted the Hill District as the place that it was going to tear down in order to build some of its new facilities. So over the course of a fairly short period of time, about 8,000 people were displaced. And so they either sort of were sent off to other neighborhoods or were pressed into what was left of the Hill. And so the upper third of the neighborhood became overcrowded um, and, you know, poverty set in, jobs were gone, um, crime was on the rise. So by the mid 1960s, it was, um, you know, it was a, it was a very, it was a beleaguered neighborhood, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, Ed, yeah, uh, Kevin, can you talk a little bit about the spread of this practice? Um, you know, where you you've mentioned 1967 and 68. Um, I grew up. Uh, in Durant, which is about 20 miles west of uh, Davenport here, but it's a small town. And I remember in 1973, they had the first fundraiser for the volunteer ambulance service. So this thing must have just spread like wildfire. You know, it really did. If you, if you, (laughs) we all just watched the advent of the internet a couple of days, decades ago, and it, it, now none of us can imagine a world in which it didn't exist. Well, paramedics were, were just such an innovation. So Safford designs this 
training program, which is a nine-month training program modeled after uh, medical school. So after they finish the classroom portion, they go to various parts of the hospital, ICU, OR, ER, the morgue, they go to the OB to spend time with the doctors learning how these things actually work. And when they go out, it is an immediate and unqualified success. Uh, study is done of critical patients that are transported to the hospital over about an 18-month period. The police and the fire department both do the wrong thing with critical patients about 80% of the time, whereas Freedom House does the right thing 80% of the time. Um, and so, as, you know, not only are they successful, but they're helmed by Peter Saffer, who is, you know, he, <laughs> he is not a subtle presence. You know, people know him. He is the father of CPR. And so doctors around the country begin coming in to see what it is that he's doing here. Um, as, at that same time, there are various advances that are beginning to percolate, as, as so often does happen. Um, in Miami, there was a doctor by the name of Nagel who had begun doing telemetry so you could transport an EKG from a remote location to a hospital. Um, in, Calo, yeah, in San Francisco, they had begun doing some more advanced cardiac work. So little things were beginning to happen around the country, and Safra was the first one to put it all together, but the appetite was growing and the need was growing. And so once Freedom House started and people saw how successful it could be, and then very quickly, other cities began to adopt its model. Okay. Um, my uncle, Dr. Pat Keeley, was in charge of the trauma unit at the University of Iowa. So the question I'm asking, of course, is you're talking about the situation where policemen or firemen take the individual who is in need of um, fast, intensive care and then take him to the hospital. Did hospitals have trauma units there to deal with these patients who need um, medical aid quickly from the paramedics? Or was that something that kind of sprung board from the paramedics uh, system created and they realized, oh, we have to have something ready for the patients when the ambulances bring them? Those are two things that were happening at the same time. The modern ER as we know it really was something that began in, in the late 60s and did not become an official specialty for much until much later. You know, oftentimes if you were injured in practically any city in the country and you showed up, the person who would be on call was a physician that was simply on call. It was not an ER doctor. So you could have a surgeon on call. You may also have an OB who was on call who might not be the right person if you've been shot. So hospitals were just beginning to coalesce around the idea of having an emergency department, um, but that was very much in its early stages. And so, you know, yes, while, you know, you, you suddenly have patients who are arriving at the hospital with the first few things um, that need to be done in a life-threatening emergency already done, hospitals are also at the same time slowly beginning to specialize in emergency care. Terry. Yeah, Kevin, um, at the beginning of your book, you talk about one of the original 24 black men um, who served as paramedics, and one of them was John Moon. And you talked in great deal about his upbringing in Atlanta and, and specifically in a neighborhood called Buttermilk Bottom. Can you talk a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, so that neighborhood, if you have any... If you've ever been to Atlanta, it's the dead center of town, but there are there are several north-south roads that run right through the middle of the city, and one of them is Piedmont, 
and another one is called Boulevard. And if you go back 70, 80 years, those roads had very large stately houses on them that over time have been replaced by high rises. But at that time, that was where the city's wealthy residents lived. And there was a depression. There was sort of a gully that, that connected those two parallel streets. And that area in between was referred to as Buttermilk Bottom. Exactly where it got its name is difficult to say. Some people um, say it is from the, the uh, sewage that was constantly backflowing into the streets because of its, you know, sort of concave location. But it was a neighborhood in the middle of Atlanta uh, whose residents were there specifically to serve as domestics for the people living in those large houses. Um, the neighborhood was entirely black. They did not have running water. Um, John was born in 47, and he talked about having to, you know, use a hand pump to get water into the house. They did not have electricity. Um, so this was, you know, in the middle of, a, of an American city, this was not, you know, a, a far rural area. In the middle of an American city, you had people without basic services. Um, and, of course, the reason they did not have basic services is because the city did not prioritize the health and well-being of those residents to the point that there was the occasional um, typhoid outbreak, which is re <laughs> really a remarkable thing to try to imagine, you know, in a 20th century American city. But but that was that was definitely the case um, when John went into the orphanage. Um, part of the reason that he he did that was because they were slowly beginning to tear that neighborhood down. And so not only was his father, his his mother died when he was young. Not only was his father struggling to take care of two young kids, um, you know, while working full time, but he wasn't sure where they were going to be living. And shortly after they went to the orphanage, it was torn down, much like the Hill District was. Um, and in its place went a road and a civic center. Okay. Ed. Yes, uh, Kevin, that mail-only thing couldn't have lasted very long. Um, and I th and again, I think in terms of my local ambulance service that was started in 73 by the local female doctor. Um, but can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, and I, I, I would presume that the reason that they originally recruiting men was because in the mid-1960s, that, that's simply how they thought. Um, you're right, by, by the, the end of Freedom House's run in 1975, there were women involved in uh, providing care. Um, also, you know, one of their most um, uh, important medical directors was a, a very young woman by the name of Nancy Caroline, who was just out of her residency. Um, and she went on to have an enormous role with, um, with Freedom House and was actually, you know, slept at the station and was running calls on the ambulance with them. So it certainly was a thing in the very beginning, um, but, you know, I think by the 1970s, that idea that, that this was a man's shot was very quickly going away. Okay, Kevin, um, it started off obviously in Pittsburgh. Um, did the state legislature look at this and say, yes, this is something that we must mandate? Or, um, and again, as Ed pointed out, in a lot of small towns, it was voluntary. But, like, what direction did it go? Was it that the hospitals started picking up and the community followed or were there communities that said yes this is what we have to do and then they they brought the hospitals along well the hospitals had been involved with ems until world war ii and you know that were sort of 
sucked in all available medical resources. And so the hospitals, without a single person or bandage to spare, jettisoned the, the EMS services. And that's that has never gone back. So, you know, they were absorbed by fire departments. They were absorbed by police departments, civil defense agencies when they were still around. Um, but they remained separate of of the hospitals. And so they became public services. I think very quickly cities and states realized the importance of it. In fact, the state of Pennsylvania realized it more, much quickly, much faster than uh, the city of Pittsburgh. Peter Saffer was, um, he was a very big part of the state's emergency planning, even though he was, you know, having a running feud with the city of Pittsburgh while Freedom House was in operation. So they were in favor of it, but, you know, as with all public projects, it all came down to money and how do you, how do you pay for it? And what do you stop paying to pay for this? And who are you going to tax in order to pay for this? So governments saw the need, um, residents certainly saw the need and, and appreciated the care, but as continues to be the case today, governments you know, were very gun shy when it came to, you know, pulling the trigger on payments. Terry. Yeah, so, Kevin, you mentioned that uh, Freedom House was in service from 67 to 75, so only eight short years. So what happened? Why did it, what was the demise? Was it money, politics, or something else? Um, essentially, when, when, the, when, when the program first started, it was under one administration. And when, in 1970, a new mayor was elected, and there were several things that immediately popped up. One was he was in opposition uh, ideologically to public-private partnerships, and Freedom House certainly was one of those. Um, he also had some big trouble very early on with the police department. He had, um, he had closed down its tactical units, and then he also tried to integrate its foot patrols. And these were things that really really angered the um oh and he also fired a very popular police superintendent so the police union really did not care for him and he realized i think very fairly quickly that that was a very powerful voting block that needed to get back on his side and because the city of pittsburgh had ambulance or excuse, excuse me police-borne ambulances prior to freedom house every freedom house paramedic that hit the street meant a job taken away from a police officer so that was a big part of the problem. Um, another part of the problem, um, you know, and if you if you talk to any of the people who were involved, it, be, it, it appeared to be very clear very early on that, you know, many people in the city um, were not only skeptical skeptical of what was happening in the ambulances, but they were very skeptical <laughs> skeptical of who was performing that work. Um, the fact that that these paramedics were all black was certainly a sticking point for many people in the city government and you know it'd be very difficult to say that racism did not play a large part in the services demise ed yeah um is there um that lingering uh, that lingering sort of fear if you will about uh, today in the communities people of color um is there that lingering fear yet um about if a white if a white EMT shows up, hmm. Well, I can't speak for every city, but I will say that in the city of Atlanta, um, 
you know, where I worked for a decade, I never walked into the house of a black patient and had them reluctant to allow me to treat them or, or have them think that I'm not there to provide care. There were certainly barriers that at times we had to cross and, um, you know, the relations are not always, you know, perfect, but I don't know that there was a great fear from the black community that white paramedics would treat them well. Um, that I think is, you know, there's a bit of a shift right now. Um, you know, I think COVID has sort of shaken the foundations of public trust when it comes to large institutions, medicine included. I think, you know, some of the things that have been going on with, you know, sort of ancillary to police shootings, like the two paramedics um, recently who were, who were fired over, you know, after that young man was, was beaten by the police. So, you know, I think a new uh, level of skepticism has come in because there have been some some instances where I think people have, you know, begun to question. But I don't know that that was that was not something that I experienced. But again, I you know, I, I think that there's a there's a climate right now in which some of that's changing. All right. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. Kevin, in the last two minutes, why do you think knowing about the black men who are America's first paramedics is relevant in today's world? For starters, I would say this is a truly fantastic American story. And if you are a fan of American history, if you are a fan of America in general, if you if you think that we uh, as a people have, have wonderful things to offer to one another, then I think this story is a perfect place to start. You know, this is a group of people who were overlooked and looked down on and counted out and told you don't matter who answered a call for help and quite literally changed the way lives are saved around the world um to me that is you know that is a a, a, the the service that they provided to the rest of us is simply not something we can repay them for um and i think also if you just sort of look where we are in this moment we we certainly could use you know this 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 coming together of of different people and you know emergencies are one of the you know one of the purest distillers of that and it's very difficult um, when lives are on the line um, to to choose me versus you and you know this story and people who do this job overcome tremendous odds every day uh, to provide life-saving care regardless of who or what you are Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. 
This concludes our 504th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, Kevin Hazard, journalist and author, who talked to us about his book, American Sirens, the incredible story of black men who became America's first paramedics. The history buster of today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.